But in general, Jews don't care that much about the afterlife. It's kind of an afterthought. The whole purpose of our existence is to live in the world that we're given and to be partners with God to make it our Gan Eden, our Garden of Eden. So our job isn't to say, thanks for saving me for all the bad things that I've done, looking forward to seeing you when I'm dead. It's a, all right, let's see how I can make this world that you've given me work. You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... My name is Adam Pryor. I teach at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. The current Lego set that I think I have most enjoyed building is the Lego City Space Mars Research Shuttle uh, that was for my daughter. <laughs> Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. And I have to say right now my favorite set to build is I do have a Millennium Falcon from a couple years ago. Not the original and not the $800 one that I so desperately want. Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina. And I'm staying with the trend. I didn't have Legos as a kid, so this is all an adult fascination. And my favorite things to build from a set are anything space related. So right now I'm looking at the Saturn V rocket that is towering over the rest of our Lego city. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and my children are five and two, so we're not quite at the Lego stage. We're still with uh, Mega Bloks and Duplo. So we mostly just build towers, which are swiftly deconstructed. Sometimes (laughs) we build castles, which are also deconstructed so i don't think i've been able to work on a project long enough for it to actually become something well i did not i did not plan this i did not anticipate our answers to this question but today we're going to be talking about star trek which um, if you've listened to other other episodes, you're aware that I love Star Trek. I think that's a fair way of saying it. I I I would not cate- categorize myself as a Trekkie, but perhaps somebody else might. <laughs> so um, that makes you more of a Trekkie, doesn't it? Or is that in- just like <laughs> a, you're like a hipster Trekkie? Uh, yes, in in all honesty. <laughs> so, for example, I have a computer bag uh, for my laptop. And it's actually a command bag, command red, and it's got the four pips on the inside and it's got, you know, the uh, the communicator badge. Right? So that's my computer bag. And then outside my house, I have Star Trek gnomes. <gasps> um, no, so- seriously? <laughs> no, no, seriously. I'll, I'll put a picture of this too. Um, right. Deanna holding chocolate ice cream. Data holding uh, his cat Spock. Uh, Picard sitting Spot. in his chair. Um, Spock, you know, holding, holding live long and prosper. So, um, but you don't, you don't consider yourself a Trekkie, even though you have lawn ornaments that are Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) That is correct. What is a Trekkie then? Like, I I feel like, like there are entrance requirements to Trekkie. I'm a diehard (laughs) Star Wars fan, right? But I've never been to Star Wars convention and I don't have any lawn ornaments that are Star Wars themed. So I'm, I'm clearly behind. Well, you know, if I'm maybe this is an intervention, maybe maybe I am, um, because three years ago for Halloween, we all dressed as Star Trek, Star Trek people. Uh, Adrian, who at that point was like two and a half or something, was was the captain. Uh, of course. I was I was medical and Daniel was security. So we all had our different color <laughs> uniforms um, as our so Halloween you weren't even costume. a specific character. You you were just. <laughs> The profession, yeah, because it was it was a twelve dollar <laughs> uniform. It didn't really okay. come with much more than just the color of the shirt with marked on pips. But I, I realize as I'm saying these things in enumeration, perhaps <laughs> I I love I love it a little bit more. <laughs> um, so I think the level in my head was like dressing up for convention. 
and I've never been to a convention. Yeah, um, I haven't either. But I have looked into uh, the Star Trek cruise, but I get seasick, so that that wouldn't work. So w- this this is why we're having this conversation, and um, in this in our down the wormhole goes to the movies. Each of us has taken on something that we love and are passionate about. And I think we're able to share with each other our our geekdom, our, you know, our, our, I'm not going to say necessarily just our sci-fi, but I think each one of us has one of those. And I know that Zach particularly loves Doctor Who. However, it doesn't it's not really a movie so it's it was a little bit harder to bring that one in you know and then of course we had star wars and stuff like that so this yes. is this is star trek and <clears throat> it is okay for us to be able to geek out with each other even if it's not our own geekiness absolutely if that makes mm. sense so um so keep listening even if you don't love star trek to the point of having lawn ornaments um <laughs> <laughs> that see i think i'm glad you embrace that because that's like a big that's that's you know that's big no i and i i have felt this a lot in adulthood that i am still in many ways a a bullied teenager who is ashamed of liking things mm-hmm. and every once in a while i'll forget that i'm that i should be self-conscious about it and i'll get real excited in public about something and then somebody will will be will call me out on it, and then I'll get super ashamed again and put my nerd flag away. And mm. so, since this is a podcast, most likely you're listening to this alone, um, <laughs> geek out. So this is a safe place for you to be as nerdy as you possibly want. Right. And send us your comments. Tell us what your geekdom is, what you nerd out on. Uh, my ambialic as a parenthetical aside, my Bialik had um, like a vlog differentiating nerd and geek and dork, I think was the third one that she did, but I'm not, I can't remember <laughs> what the third pejorative. one was. Um, <laughs> I, I just remember geek and nerd. And so I'll put a link there in the show notes too for that. But Star Trek, Star Trek. Um, we couldn't just say Star Trek because it has been around for a very long time. Um, the first episodes from the TV show started in 1966, and they are still going on, albeit in a different it's crazy. way. So there's there's now like there was a break in the mid 2000s between classic Trek and new Trek, but there have been so many different so many different movies i think were uh, in the classic trek there were 10 different movies and in this new trek were at least 3 or 4 in the three the kelvin so timeline yeah. okay in addition to um let's see 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 different series so this is it's its whole universe including the um, animated series is that in there cuz that was wacky the animated series i don't believe is listed in this one. No. Oh man. No. Um, I've got one. this. I've got this great. I've got this great picture from uh, a Reddit. So I'll share that as well. It does not have the animated series listed though, and that was totally wacky. So I know we're focusing on films, but I just, I'm curious if you don't mind me sharing your opinion. What of the series, the TV series, was your favorite? Mine. Mm-hmm. I like them all for different okay. reasons. Um, I think each one of them has something else to give. So Deep Space Nine gave you these major story arcs um, because it was it was in location as okay. a, it was it was stable, right? right. Like that was its that was its thing. It's in a it's in a space station, not a spaceship. So it it, it was able to create really a very different story arc. Um, I liked Voyager because of the the existential crisis that they were facing of home and that it had a female captain next gen will always be in my heart as my first true love. I love that one the most. Um, Enterprise. I'm just getting back into, I find it's interesting to sort of see the origin of developing the prime directive. Um, And the original series hats off to that, even though I can't stand it. Um, (laughs) Like I, I didn't like it. So you don't really like them equally. I, 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 that's no, but I, I think, but they all have something really good to give. 
<gasps> well, you know? and so same I'll be thing, honest. Same I, thing with the movies. Right. I just started watching Enterprise the other day because I was reading mm-hmm. about this different series and the timelines. I loved Next Generation. I've not seen them all, but I've seen most of them. I really like that a lot. I, I did not get into the others, right? Um, yeah. Until the new ones, like these newer ones mm-hmm. that are out now. Discovery and Picard. Yeah, mm-hmm. Discovery I liked um, and Picard I liked a lot. I really liked Picard a lot. Um, Don't spoil it. I haven't watched it all. I, I, I has everyone else. So, yeah, uh, it was very Spoilers. well done. I thought it was very interesting. Um, yeah. But I just started watching Enterprise for exactly the same reason you just said, Rachel. Is I thought it was really I had no idea that it was set prior to timeline wise prior to the original series, and I just thought, well, oh, that'd be really interesting to see. Yeah, it's only so. set like 130 years in the future. Uh, yeah, of where so we that's are now. really interesting and just kind of the dynamics there. So I'm looking forward to watching mm. that. But yeah, I'll exactly. I'll watch but the others because you're you're doing them justice. I think they're I, again. I think they're all great in their own way. And we I I might not like the actual original series in terms of an episodic content, but similar as when we had our conversation of 2001, we wouldn't be where we are without them. Right. We couldn't have Star Trek one through 10 movies if we didn't have the original series. So today, because there are 10 movies, I wanted to focus on one in particular called uh, Star Trek Seven Generations, which came out in 1994. Um, and as probably the only one here who actually likes the original series, I'm glad that we picked that one. I, I picked it so <laughs> that we could, honestly, so that we could straddle both, both of them. Yeah. Because I think I, I think that there are a lot of benefits to to the early to the early series. But so we've been talking about right. The purpose of us having this conversation is to talk about the where we where we might see science and where we might see um, religion come into play. And for me, taking a a sci-fi movie which makes no uh, makes no claims that it's not sci-fi. Right? It, it doesn't try to pretend to be something else and put in so much religious content is astonishing to me. Um, so for in this movie, in Generations, they have uh, Picard loses his nephew and his young nephew. And he is thinking about the afterlife. He's thinking about the pain that he's going through and how to how to clear up that pain. And and Guinan comes in and tells him about this this place that Soren, the um, the antagonist, he's not really a bad guy, except that he wants to just be selfish and do what he wants and kill, kill the lives of 230, million. 230 million. million um, yeah. Pre-space travel peoples. But he's not doing it because he wants them to die. He's doing it just for his own good. Right. So he's he's still kind of evil, but not in that dystopian universe way of evil, which when they talk about the nexus or the ribbon coming through, it feels as though that is a place to talk about a, a heavenly afterlife. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to, to get your guys' feel in terms of how did you interpret the nexus, the ribbon from a religious standpoint. So I remember seeing that film when it came out in the theaters and I guess I was a junior in high school and I remember going with a few of my friends and and watching that and I I was excited about it because of of it connecting the original series with the generation series um which I thought was really interesting I I do remember thinking to myself but at the time you know I also wasn't very religious and so I remember at least thinking about like uh, the fanaticism of Soren, for example. Um, And then the whole idea, you know, of of stopping at nothing to get what you want, but in the same sense, like not purposefully wanting to kill millions, as you said, but being okay with that as the ramifications for his decisions, you know, being like, well, you know, I don't want to do this, but you know what? Oh, well. Um, 
And then also too, like you said, the heavenly aspect of things I thought was very interesting. So it was, it was interesting to watch it again, to prepare for this episode, this episode, this recording with my new lens, with the lens I have now yeah. in my life of what is it like, like with my focus on science and religion. And it just was fascinating to kind of see it again and also see like the turmoil of Picard, even though I remembered it, but to get it from this different perspective of, you know, losing his brother and nephew, realizing his family name wouldn't pass on, and then being presented with something that he so desperately wanted and his inner turmoil of having to handle that, mm-hmm. I thought was was really interesting. Yeah. So I also remember too that I've always thought that Picard you know, Kirk was kind of a, in all the films, kind of a tough badass and would fight and do well mm-hmm. in his fights. And Picard never did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very clear in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember seeing it back then that I was like, yep, it's clear you know, again. So Picard would try, but he was never no Kirk when it came to like to fighting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you can see that when both Kirk fight, fight Soren and Picard fight Soren and who really wins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Because Kirk is Kirk is always all in. Yep. Right. But just to be clear, Kirk would have failed just as miserably on his own to disarm uh, his plan. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yes. he's all yep. brute force, and he doesn't have this. is This is what makes the original series so brilliant. Is is not. I don't like Kirk as a as a solo character the way that I would like Picard. But yeah. Kirk and Spock together yes. form yeah. this. Uh, this exploration of the human condition where they're both mm-hmm. such archetypes. They, you know, they're, they're just these mm-hmm. extremes on either end and, and the butting of heads between the two of them, I, I think helps to explore certain topics that sci-fi is really good at exploring. Like, like when he, um, when Picard finds him in, you know, what, what, what he saw kind of as the afterlife in the ribbon, in the nexus. And he was just, feeling with his gut right away where he's just like, Oh, I get a second chance. I'm doing it. This is great. This is wonderful. I'm going to eat. And then I'm going to go. He doesn't say so, but presumably go make love to this beautiful woman. And here I am. I'm just going to feed all of my natural appetites for, uh, for life that I can do now that, that I can do whatever I want. And, you know, Picard's ideal future was this, idyllic uh, Victorian era Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Thank you for my dolly, Papa. I yeah. love you. And it's so cerebral and <laughs> polite and yep. respectable. And it comes with its own cup of Earl Grey hot. Yes. And everyone's everyone's kind of nexus is unique to them. Yeah that finds what is perfect and good and wonderful in your heart's desire. But that that moment when Kirk jumps over the creek and then he does it <laughs> like three or four times and he's like, I'm not scared because I know I'll be okay. And so it's well, not fun anymore because well, I'm not scared. What you're saying now, you know, you, you think about, because when we first see them in the Nexus together and you know, you're right about Kirk being like, the galaxy, you know, he says to him, the galaxy owes me one. You know, I was saving the galaxy be- while your grandfather was in diapers and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, when Picard is trying to guilt him into doing it, what I thought was fascinating, and while even though he was being, Kirk was being, was put into this utopia of being able to fix what he saw as his mistakes, life mistakes within like 10 years prior to that, that the Nexus wouldn't let him. It yeah. kept moving the goalposts for him to be able mm-hmm. to fix that mistake. And so mm-hmm. it's almost like if the nexus is representative of who we are deep down, that his subconscious was saying, I'm not letting you fix this mistake. Well, You're his not subconscious allowed to fix it. was telling him that it was never the thing itself that you wanted. It was always the chase. It was the okay. thrill yeah. of the getting, right? Like, and, and this is, you know, dopamine that we always say is yep. the happy drug. But you don't get dopamine from from getting something. You get go, dopamine from thinking about getting the thing, from wanting it. It's an anticipatory feeling. And that's all he wanted. He's just looking for the next thing. Like he retires so many times in these movies and he gets <laughs> yeah. promoted to Admiral and he's he's getting everything that he ever wants and he's bored every time because he's not blowing something up and or being blown up. You know, he he keeps dying. 
and it's great and he loves doing it every time (laughs) it's great for us too i think that i think that adds to the um you know sort of adding the scientific piece here though i see one of the one of the things kirk says to picard in this movie is whatever you know they're on the they're on the horses and he says are you nearing retirement and picard's like uh probably not <laughs> you know i just went bald early i i and he says whatever you do don't let them promote you stay captain don't become admiral don't right he gives him this long speech of just don't retire and just just be a captain and to me that that need that chase that curiosity is also the the sort of ideal of a scientist so when I was um, when I was working as a bench chemist, of course, we all had to do, you know, reports and stuff like that. But I love being able to solve a problem, not not the actual solution, <laughs> but being able to solve it, to have that chase. And I think that's what we are seeing in those examples is the, the science side of things, not just the uh, emotional, cerebral, religious pieces. Adam, yeah. you've been very pensive looking. I didn't know if you wanted to. Oh no! Jump in, uh, or maybe you're falling asleep. I don't know. No, I know, no, no, no. I'm not falling asleep. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> no. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about like, there's this that that like description that you're offering, Rachel, of of science, right? And this this process of like the joy, not necessarily being in the actual solution, but in the like process of solving mm-hmm. a problem. Right. Yeah. And it reminds me of this philosopher, Jean Luc Marion, who doesn't write about science. I mean, he mostly writes about sex, but I, I promise I'll bring this back around and it. I'm looking won't, forward to this one. Gary, <laughs> 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 too much bleeping. Um, <laughs> so, uh, no, what's, so but what's his name again? Jean Luc Marion. Good name. Um, <laughs> So, so he ends up, he, he writes about the experience of erotic relations and desire. And a lot of what I hear you describing in terms of science, right, is, is also, I think, sort of what we've been describing in terms of these religious reflections on the nexus is this, this way in which desire functions and how we imagine afterlife or heaven, hmm. right? So, when we fulfill a desire and it's suddenly gone and it doesn't have that ring for us anymore, that that sort of thing that motivates us to to go back into it again, it it loses some of its appeal, right? Mm. I I think about like so I didn't ever do bench science, right? But like when I wrestle with a text for a paper for a really long time and I finally write that paragraph the way I want it to really be written, I'm somehow suddenly simultaneously both thrilled and utterly dissatisfied now that the puzzle's solved. Yep. Hmm. Right? Um, and so, so Marianne talks about this in terms of like that our desire is really well modeled in certain sexual encounters where what you end up with is this inflaming of desire by its fulfillment. So the accomplishment of the thing actually drives you towards it further. And there's that needed sense of letdown in order to go back to pursuing it again, right? So you solve the problem as a bench scientist and in a certain, like, I mean, it's almost like he's describing like junkies, right? Like yeah, I, I was just I was just thinking that, <laughs> right? Like you you it's solve the, the problem. I need, I need more. I need more. Yeah, yeah exactly. right. It's and still the dopamine. It, right, and so so desire is this word to describe that process of of that that reinflaming of of want of need, and that there's a certain sense in which that's so fundamental to who we are as human beings. Do most of our visions of of heaven not hold up? Because eventually you lose that sense of desire. This was always my problem with heaven. And it was not something I'd ever voice because everyone in, in my circles, at least growing up and even now, the whole point of the thing, of the religious thing, is heaven. 
and what's heaven but the perfect state of being where you get everything that your heart so desires and you are completely and totally fulfilled in this endless state of ecstasy or something like that and we used to sing this worship song i could sing of your love forever and the chorus is just that i could sing of your love forever i could sing of your love forever uh, forever it goes on forever it never <laughs> stops it's like it's like that lamb chop song it just keeps going <laughs> and but the worship leader would, would almost without fail i could almost see it in their eyes would like get the music down a little low and then they'd start doing like this little mini sermonette and quoting the psalms and being like mm, just drink this moment in friends we are just going to one day just be worshiping god forever just like this in this sweet sweet moment will just be forever and every time they said that i'd go oh dear god no like i'm just <laughs> i'm praying for annihilationism to be a thing because i don't want to do this forever it seems so miserable and even 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 like the image that you go to heaven and all of your joys are fulfilled and you've got your mansion and your crown with all of your jewels in it. And you get to constantly stand around the throne and sing Hosanna or whatever the Bible says you're going to do. Like that's like 15 minutes tops. And then, uh, <laughs> so, and then I'm supposed to do this forever. I, I mean, and I think that's the problem of the nexus. Right mm -hmm. in this movie, right? It's also like the problem in the last season of The Good Place, which uh, I think is brilliant on this issue. Y'all watch right? The Good Place? So I have not. Amazing. We're starting it. I have not <gasps> actually watched it. I wish I could be you and see it again for the first time. It's it was one of the best shows I've ever seen. Yeah, ever. initially I didn't get into it, but again, no, it was when tough I first couple episodes. Well, when I first started watching it, I was not very strong on this spiritual journey that I'm on. Like it just, I just, none of that stuff mattered to me. So it's, it's been fascinating now. No anyway, show sorry. has ever been that funny and philosophical and theological just wrapped up together. And I wish that I could talk about that last season in detail. I've been thinking it this whole time, but yes, I can't too. think of a way to talk about it that doesn't spoil previous seasons other than to say that when you get what you want in heaven, it's super boring. Especially since <laughs> it is still fairly new. Yes. Yeah. Right. That right. that this season has not. It, it's not like this movie that we're talking about or attempting to twenty five years ago, <laughs> twenty six years ago. Um, it came out this year, so so we are not going to spoil it. But believe you us, listeners, we will be talking about the good place in the future. But I I want to I, wanna, I wanna So I need to hurry up. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um. And Zach, I actually want to pick apart something that you were just saying in terms of time about that that forever feeling. And I in this movie particularly, Guinan as a um an echo, I believe is the word that she uses. Mm -hmm. Because Picard's like, What are you doing here? I thought you were on this ship. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I'm just an echo. I love Guinan. And Whoopi Goldberg plays her amazingly. Picard asks Guinan. How long has Kirk been here? Mm -hmm. And she says to him, it's like he just got here. Yeah, he just got here too. I was really surprised by that. But he'd been dead 80 years. So maybe this concept of time, again, if we're if we're melding this this science thing, which I would put time as a science thing. And this religious place, maybe this concept of forever has no earthly time to it. Maybe it's living and surpassing the fourth dimension. Yes. So that, well, and we, that, but we that your fear there, that your fear of foreverness being boring after 15 minutes. But, but so we tie, maybe never our, 15 minutes. we tie all of our ideas about heaven into temporal language exactly. right about it, it, desire yeah. and want and activities even like i would i wouldn't say all because i was going to give some examples of jewish jewish stuff please that doesn't, but you well, keep our, going no our last day of sinai and synapses we decided to walk from from claw <laughs> to the ymca yep. instead of yep. taking an uber or the yeah. the the subway or any of that stuff because yep. we've been cooped up inside you and i yep. i think we talked about 
Christian and Jewish perceptions of heaven for like the entire yes. time. And it was one yeah. of the most enlightening conversations I've ever had. And I was hoping and that it was you like would 40 blocks. give some of those, <laughs> those um, amazingly mm, <laughs> graphic <laughs> Roman orgy yes. style descriptions of, yes. the, of the Jewish heaven. <laughs> because Christian heaven's super lame. But before you... <laughs> Before you go, <laughs> sorry, no, I, I, it's not super lame. We have a tree that has a fruit that's a different fruit every month, and that's that's neat, I guess. <laughs> so before we, I mean, Adam took us down the conversation about. Yeah. I'm just saying, Zach brought us back to sex, not me. And then Zach brought us back. <laughs> it all goes back to sex so. with, with Kirk. Yeah, so we'll talk about that again in a minute. One thing I'm curious about that part of the scene you just talked about, Rachel. With Guinan mm-hmm. and and her saying I'm like an echo of my real self, and she says, you know, when she says to Kirk's perspective, he just got here too. One thing I'm curious about is that, like, how it's her experience with the Nexus happened right before Kirk's did. When you look at time, because what she experienced of the Nexus was when they were rescuing when they got them off that ship. So mm-hmm. according to time, it was right before he died. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So how is it that to her, it wouldn't have been that she had just arrived there also. Because she that- left. Okay. Yeah. She left. She wasn't actually there. She was a fig, just like the children weren't there. Um, okay. But, okay. Right. Picard was imagining this in his heart of hearts and in his heart of hearts, just like Kirk, right, Kirk was kind of forced into it. Right. He had to do the same thing over and over and over again until he realized, oh, something's not quite right about this. Picard had that already in his subconscious right. and it just materialized as Guinan. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So All right. Carry on. Let's now talk about orgies. Yes, I'm trying to look. Uh, up. There are some You're looking Star up Trek orgies. I really can... want to see your search history, <laughs> <laughs> but specifically Jewish orgies. <laughs> Talmudic. Sorry, Talmudic. Go on your guy. Facebook page later today. You're going to see all your advertisements. Let me tell oh, you. Oh, I'd love to see okay. what the Wish ad is for, for that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Those are the best ads. Okay. PSA, if you are searching for something you don't want to show up, just use your incognito tabs, people. I had an ad the other day from Wish, and it was a plastic thing that I could strap around a pigeon so that I could neuter the pigeon. What? Oh. Wait, hold it was, wait, stop. No, no, no. It was no, we, so we are not specific. letting this go. Why are, why are you neutering pigeons? Yeah. I don't what, know. What do you do up in that area of the How country? Has it gotten that bad, man. Yeah. <laughs> you must really need a new hobby. It's I want okay. to know what it was about about my life what did and you my search? Facebook profile that the algorithm thought this might be an interesting thing. <laughs> You damn environmentalists will try anything. <laughs> that might be it. I'm worried about the overpopulation of pigeons, and so I'm out there just catch and stay. <laughs> oh, I mean, I know you take your seed bomb seriously, but this, this is a new level to prove. <laughs> so anyway. I have no coming back from that. Yeah. than other Western religions. I cannot speak to other religions. And I don't also want to paint, I know that I'm painting a very broad stroke here. But in general, Jews don't care that much about the afterlife. It's kind of an afterthought. Hmm. That the whole purpose of our existence 
is to live in the world that we're given and to be partners with God to make it the life to to make it the world that we currently live in to make that our Gan Eden, our Garden of Eden. We might have left it, but it's our job to cultivate it and make it that way again. So our job isn't to say, thanks for saving me for all the bad things that I've done. Looking forward to seeing you when I'm dead. It's a, all right, let's see how I can make this work, this world that you've given me work. And that it is better Right, there, there's these other stories, right, and we do so in commandment form, right? Because God is the one saying to do all these things and giving us the instruction manual, the the original how-to book of, well, how do you make this world right? And by fulfilling each one of those mitzvahs or mitzvot, then you're then you're bringing that about, and it's better to the the reason that we don't want to die is that we can't continue to fill, fulfill our mates' votes because that that's really where we're centered in. And so the afterlife, well, we have to think about it, but it doesn't take up that much of our, our, our paper space, frankly. But when we do talk about it, like everything else, two Jews, three opinions, we have no idea what it's going to look like. And I want to dispel the notion that Jews don't believe in hell. Jews do not believe in eternal damnation. But the idea that one is not punished, uh, a, a, the idea that one does not suffer divine punishment for things done on earth would be inaccurate for the majority of Talmudic and rabbinic theologies. Right? But it just doesn't last forever. It lasts an earth year because they also recognize that we don't know what time is like hmm. there. So we're just going to pretend that it's one Earth year. And at that point, you then move on to this other space. So then they questioned, well, what is this other space? Right after this, after your one year probationary period, which will be better or worse, depending what kind of person you were on Earth, what are you going to deal with? And so this comes from um, the Babylonian Talmud, which was written down in about the fifth century. It is just going to be sitting at golden banquet tables, sitting upon stools of gold, enjoying lavish banquets, or from a different rabbi, from from the tractate uh, Brachot, he says, no, 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 it's just going to be Sabbath, sunshine, and sex all the time, no matter what. And someone else disagreed okay. with him. Yeah, right. Sunshine, yeah. sex, and... and uh, and Sabbath. Mm. And someone else disagreed and said, no, you're thinking about this all wrong. Rav says, no, there's no eating, no drinking, no procreation, no nothing, no envy, no hatred, no rivalry. But all you do is sit in the essence of God. There is nothing corporeal. There is, there is no action. It's not your desires. Your desires only matter in this life. What matters in the afterlife is that you become one with God. Nothing more and nothing less. So that's part of it. Now, hell is really awful. (laughs) People get real creative about that. Real creative. Mm. So we want to go to heaven for sure. Or everyone everyone gets there. No, everyone yeah. gets everyone gets to this olam. Olam haba is the world to come or the world after. And everyone gets there. Um, it's just a how long do you have to journey through this other land? Mm-hmm. Um, so even find... even like Moses and Abraham have to go through everyone, the... oh. everyone. So they don't have to um, skip what the if line you, or anything like that. Right. What if what if you skip the line like Elijah? Do you, do you get to just? Mm. Jump on in. Well, Elijah never officially died. Right. So he's just his own special case. And Enoch became, um, um, what, what is Enoch? Metatron. There you go. He became yeah. a transformer. And that's really all I ever think about. Like, okay, Optimus <laughs> Prime, Metatron. <laughs> um, yeah, Enoch. So I- ignoring those two, right? They're special cases, but right. everyone else. So. And we discussed this in prior prior episodes. My favorite number is 49. Mm. And 
one of the one of this mystical concepts is that there are 50 levels of righteousness, 50 levels of perfection, as it were, right? Godly perfection, righteousness perfection in our ability to to bring God into our lives. And Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, right? The the end-all be-all Jew that none of us ever get to live up to. Um, he got to level 49. So it does not mm. allow for human beings so it's like donkey to get Kong. to level 50. <laughs> you get to the next to last level and it glitches out in Donkey Kong. I have no idea about that. But There's a documentary <laughs> about competitive Donkey Konging on Netflix that, you know, you guys should watch. Okay. But that's that's not heaven <laughs> in anyone's <laughs> So that that's part of it. But can I'm I'm looking this up. Um there is a really negative visual understanding. So let me give you, can I read you this like long paragraph and R-rated, ver- not really R-rated, but it's just really awful. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, don't stop now. Um, <laughs> I'm still hung up on the golden um, tables and then sex and Sabbath every day. I feel like those could be combined. Don't forget sunshine. Well, don't, no, yeah. it's all three combined at the same time. Like you are, it's the Sabbath. You're sitting in the sun or whatever position you're in and having sex. I mean, I'm going to make sure Anne listens to this episode. Does that those yeah. golden then, tables and chairs would be really hot? I don't know how I feel about that. And you mm-hmm. have to worry about about what you're allowed to do, right? Like you, you you couldn't do any work. You couldn't like would then constant sex be considered work? At oh, some no, point. Uh, no, sex is considered a mitzvah double on Shabbat. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, no, seriously. No, you Wait, not. seriously? Where's yeah, that? Yeah, seriously. Um, yeah, I've I never can, heard I that can... one. I, I just, I feel like I'll um, add that into I... the Hebrew Bible course. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like, I, I feel like the things that I know, um, I forget that other people don't. Um, <laughs> I feel like it, that, <laughs> when when the temple was destroyed and the kind of early Jews and early Christians went their separate ways, um, the Jews got awesome and the Christians got really repressed. Yeah. yeah. Just, yeah. I think that's a fair summary. Oh. Um, yeah, the idea that and and sex in Judaism is not just about procreation. It is also about pleasuring. Mm-hmm. And there are places in the Talmud which talks about um, if you have if you want a son, which, of course, everyone wants a male child. Um, the way to ensure that is to make sure that the woman is pleasured first and that sex on the Sabbath is not just for procreation, but just for pleasure. And one of the three reasons that a woman could divorce her husband or not divorce, could ask for a divorce from her husband is because he was not fulfilling her sexual needs. I do remember reading um, that. Yeah. But back to back to hell. Sheol Genim. So let me let me read you a little bit of this. This comes from Tractate Gehonom, uh, the, <laughs> a whole book about hell, um, basically. So this is Rabbi Joshua Ben Levi said, once upon a time, which I love how stories start like that. I was walking on my way when I met the prophet Elijah. And he says to me, would you like to be brought to the gate of Gehinom? I answered, yes. So he showed me men hanging by their hair. And he said to me, these are the men that let their hair grow to adorn themselves for sin. Others were hanging by their eyes. These were they that followed their eyes to sin and did not set HaKadosh Baruch Hu before them. Sorry, God before them. Others were hanging by their noses. These were they that perfumed themselves. Others were hanging by their tongues. They were they that slandered. Others by their hands who had stolen and robbed. Others were hanging by you know what. And those are them that committed adultery. Did it say you know what or are you? I'm adding that part. Um, <laughs> you don't need to sugarcoat it. We've been talking about it. Uh, it's got a whole variety of sounds to censor us. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. <laughs> um, yada, yada, no, but the best part. Um, and Rabbi Yochanan adds, for every sin, there is an angel appointed to obtain the expiation thereof. One comes first and obtains his expiation, then follows another and so on and so on. 
As with the debtor who has many creditors and who come before the king to claim their debts, the king delivers him to them and says, take him and divide him between yourselves. So also is the soul delivered in Gehinom to cruel angels and they divide it among themselves. So talk about drawn and quartered. Um, so you can hang Ooh. by your eyeballs and, you know, satisfy that angels. And then you go hang by your tongue and you go hang by your genitals. And then, yes. But then there's another part. Um few few pages later and then it says and there are besides seven thousand holes or crevices in a person's body and in every hole there are seven thousand scorpions and every scorpion has 300 cavities and in every cavity there are seven thousand pouches of venom And from each of these flow six rivers of deadly poison. When a man touches it, he immediately bursts. Every limb is torn from him. His body is cleft asunder, and he falls dead upon his face. The angel of destruction collects his limbs, set them aright, revive the man, place him upon his feet, and take their revenge upon him anew. And this takes place in the utmost compartment called Sheol, the height is 300 years journey, 300, the width of 300 journeys long. The second is Be'er Shachat, same height, same width. And then it keeps going of seven levels. Thus, the length of hell is altogether 6,300 years journey. Neat. So... <laughs> For heaven, we get just generic. We get we get generic descriptions of yeah, golden sex and rest. For hell, we get very specific dimensions and mm. poison count. And well, would you would you would you prefer the one flowing with milk and honey? Would you want you want that description for heaven? Then oh, do you get have, like a really long description? I have a of, nice. I have another nice one if you would like to hear it. It just seems like a point about human nature. But if it's not there, then I, I, I withdraw my case. It, it, no, it's, <laughs> it's there. Um, let me give you a short, let me give you a short one. Um, uh, they take him to a place where brooks of water surrounded by 800 varieties of roses and myrtles. Each person has a chamber allotted according to him do his honor. From it issues four streams, one of milk, one of wine, one of balsam, and one of honey. And above him, every chamber is a golden vine studded with pearls, each glistening like the brilliant planet Venus, etc., etc. Okay. All right. So, so they gave yeah, it proper time. You can, they, they did give it in a, in a completely different, in a completely different place. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but they really focus on, right, so that, that was one really nice way of looking at it but the majority of them don't give you those really nice descriptors because we don't care that much Hmm. you know but that's that's why those ones are really powerful because they're so rare you don't really get a whole lot of descriptors of the afterlife in the new testament either you get Hmm. jesus just kind of talking about paradise vaguely Hmm. um presence with god you know um, paul says absence from the body is presence with christ um, we're just oh. kind of talking about the next thing. Um, hell is mentioned a bit, um, but not really in the term of eternal conscious suffering. Uh, there's mm-hmm. one reference. and um, I had this up earlier. Um, there's one reference in the New Testament to hell being eternal conscious suffering, and that is in Revelation 14. And that is very specific to those who worship the beast and its image will receive a mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And there is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and the image and for anyone who receives the mark of its name. And that is really the only time in the new Testament where 
it is specifically said that hell lasts forever. The rest of them are references to being burned up, um, to being separated from God, talking about the second death, or times when the consequences not specifically stated. We don't really get a complex heaven and hell picture until much later when we've had a lot more time to think about it. The early Christians were concerned about not being killed because they thought Jesus was coming back next Tuesday. And so he would just kind of hook them up when he got there. And he was going to reinstate an earthly kingdom anyway, uh, because he was the Messiah. And so he was going to right do the Messiah things. And then he didn't come back and they had to kind of think on their feet about, okay, well maybe his kingdom's really not of this world. And maybe it's after we die. And then you get much more literature about the specifics of heaven and hell and a lot more folk ideology. And you end up with fat baby angels with harps in clouds singing the same chorus over and over and over again. And it's super boring, but there's, there's not really a whole lot in our scriptures either. The writers in the new Testament aren't terribly concerned with the afterlife. They're more concerned with the now life and living together and figuring out how not to die all the time. Well, but I mean, to be fair, right? Like I think you do see in the early church fathers though, a Mm -hmm. pretty, and here's where I think like the difference starts to emerge, right? So like when, when Rachel sort of started us down this track, like you, you sort of prefaced everything with this idea that like Olam, um, like, like, I mean, really like Judaism is guided by Tikkun Olam and that is, and please correct me if I'm doing this wrong, Rachel, um, like that idea is so enmeshed into the tradition and the idea that what is of most concern is the way in which I'm healing the world currently as yeah. as a mitzvot right mm-hmm. um whereas in in christianity very very early on i think what would be almost the equivalent to tikkun olam this idea of healing um is given over to god as mm-hmm. a responsibility of god god transforms the world right so the early idea of of salvation of heaven is is tied up with this idea of god's work being done and so what you see in the early church fathers then is this really deep concern for, okay, if God is going to transform the world, and that can get sort of figured narrowly or widely, but God's going to transform this world in such a way that it has to be continuous to what we're doing now so that it's recognizable, but also all of the bad stuff is stripped away. What I'm going to focus on is what does that mean about my body? Right. So I think if you look at the like the early church fathers, what you see is this like overwhelming concern for resurrection of the body and what that means in light of this split that I think has has sort of just preceded this in terms of how Christianity has taken this notion of worldly transformation and care and put it solely into the hands of God. And to my mind, right, pretty quickly that gets wrapped up with a notion of grace for Christians. I mean, in the medieval period, that's sort of wanders into a different direction right but but during the early church right that work of god to heal the world right um is for all intents and purposes equivalent to grace and so it it lets the early church fathers focus on these very what i mean i think today seem like almost like technical issues which to my mind is what's interesting about this is those accounts you're reading feel very parallel to me, to the early church fathers. But what they're worried about in terms of how the description occurs is a little different, right? But I could pick up Athanasius' reflections on the resurrection of the body. And I mean, he's deeply concerned with um, if atoms are shared between different bodies, mm-hmm. then which body do they go to yeah. um, after the resurrection, yep. right? Yep. That's a pretty highly technical concern, but it's really driven by this same sort of sentiment of mentality to say, like, this is a a sort of curiosity that comes from a certain set of suppositions about um, what we think happens at the end of time. To my mind, what's sort of critical from those early church periods is this notion of embodiment. Hmm. And I think that is the piece that 
that I think sort of goes away and has started to come back in really interesting ways. And I think to my mind, it's also the place where there's a really interesting conversation to be had between practicing Christians and practicing Jews around a a concept that I think could be much closer than what we traditionally think of it as. Sorry, that was a lecture, not a No, it's, it's interesting that <laughs> okay. you say that, though, because they were, the early churches is at once really concerned with the bodily resurrection, and as the influence of Greek thinking becomes fused with early Christian thinking, they start also talking about how wicked the body is, and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Neoplatonic resurgence and and all of that and and so then it becomes about being free of the body and being reconnected with the divine and we athanasius by the way if you look at him in any icon he will look like every other dead white christian but athanasius was known by his enemies as the black dwarf because he was short and dark-skinned and he was an african and you will never find him as a short black person in any of his icons yeah that's that's really a a sort of general problem we need to to address in christianity (laughs) right like i mean augustine everybody loves augustine yeah african yeah Uh, so like we we probably do that a little (laughs) differently than we've been you know generally depicting but i i mean i think you're saying he doesn't look like what the way he's generally depicted no, don't worry, Ian. He does. He does. It's okay. So, <laughs> for Episcopalians, he still does. And um, halos yeah. come from from Ra, and <laughs> God is God and Jesus are Zeus and Apollo. And I mean, like we're just, I mean, in in iconography, not in uh, religion. But you know what? That's another topic for another day. I think. Um, I think it is. Yeah, and I hate to to do this. I'm gonna have to go. I'm sorry. No, we all have to, but no, we all have to. Mm -hmm. Um, But the pursuit of heaven is something that this, this film certainly explores and which Mm -hmm. is not the first time that Star Trek has explored. I, in what, which one was it? The final frontier, the unexplored country, whichever one where the, the Spock's brother is trying to get them to go to number uh, five. Eden. Awful. Right, that's that's behind this cloak in the middle of whatever, and they the get there, and barrier. it's actually the Great Barrier, right? And there's actually this big disembodied face who's trapped there, and it's like, oh, you thought that this was Eden, and all those myths were true, ha 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 ha. And it was a terrible movie because William Shatner directed it and helped <laughs> yes. to write it because he was he saw some televangelists on TV and was like, I'll make a movie about that. But this movie, more just specifically, is in this idea of challenging our perception of what heaven is, right? Or what our conception of what is the best possible world. And if the best possible world is one in which everyone gets to fix all their mistakes and get everything that they want and have their perfect Victorian Christmas or their idyllic countryside splitting wood life with alien eggs then you know it's boring Mm -hmm. (laughs) and if you take that that perfect idea of heaven that we all not we all but that so many in our our religious traditions cling to and you really examine it and you 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 push play and you just let it go for a while it all gets kind of boring and maybe a film like this helps us to re-examine what we actually believe about what comes after this and if we believe anything and if it matters and if it changes how we live today. This has been episode 35 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. A big thanks to all our supporters on patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast and all of you who are still listening to podcasts even without a daily commute. I hope that we were able to add a bit of levity and a few new perspectives to your life today. Make sure you check out downthewormhole.com for show notes, links to further reading, and more. Next week, I get to literally take you down the wormhole in one of my favorite movies, Interstellar. We could talk for weeks about the scientific and societal themes of this movie, but given the state of things, I am particularly interested in the ways that we use film 
to process our fears of the apocalypse. So buckle up, friends. We're talking ancient apocalyptic literature, modern cataclysm, and why Adam thinks I'm totally wrong about the whole thing. So until next time, if you're getting bored just hanging around your house, don't forget that you could always... So you can hang by your eyeballs and, you know, satisfy that angels, and then you go hang by your tongue, and you go hang by your genitals, and then, yes...